animal agriculture stands alone. No other sector is so important to climate change and yet so under-discussed by politicians and media. About a third of planet warming emissions come from our food systems, and meat and dairy production is by far the biggest offender. In this six-part miniseries, we take a closer look at how meat shapes our society, our climate, and even our geopolitics. We explore stories from around the world, from a farmer's revolt in the Netherlands, to the giant hog farms of North Carolina, to cattle laundering in the Amazon rainforest. From the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I'm Hewan Park. And I'm Noah Gordon. And this is Barbecue Earth. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. You know the drill now. FP Live is where we have discussions with the smartest thinkers and doers in global affairs. Every week we interview policymakers, world leaders, writers, and also just people with interesting takes. Now, I'm on the road this week in LA and then in Germany for the Munich Security Conference. This week's episode is hosted by my colleague, Dan Efron. Dan is FP's executive editor for podcasts. Before joining FP, he spent 13 years at Newsweek, where he served as Jerusalem bureau chief and also national security correspondent and a few other jobs along the way. His book, Killing a King, The Assassination of Itzhak Rabin and the Remaking of Israel, which is just excellent, won a Los Angeles Times book prize and was chosen by both the New York Times and the Washington Post as one of 2015's 100 notable books. We wanted Dan to explore a really important issue for the Middle East and the whole world, Israel's new hardline government, led by a familiar face, Benjamin Netanyahu, the country's longest-serving prime minister. Netanyahu's current coalition is said to be the most far-right, religiously extreme, and ultra-nationalist coalition in the country's almost 75-year history, and it has made clear its plans to overhaul the country's justice system with far-reaching reforms that could seriously weaken the country's democracy. And since this is FP, Dan wanted to explore what this government means for the future of U.S.-Israel ties, peace with the Palestinians, regional stability, and much more. Now, I could listen to Dan talk about all these things on his own, but he chose to be in conversation with a really smart guest. Amir Tibon is senior editor and writer at Israel's Haaretz newspaper. From 2017 to 2020, he was the paper's correspondent in Washington, D.C. If you want to be a part of these conversations in the future, it's easy, and you can submit questions to expert guests and receive other excellent analysis of the world today. Just join us. As a subscriber, go to foreignpolicy.com, use the code FPLIVE for a 15% discount. And let's dive in. Thank you for joining us, Amir. Welcome to FP Live. Um, Hi, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. A lot to talk about, as you said in your intro. And, uh, and good to see you. We're going to get started right away. I want to look back at November because that's really when things start to shift in Israel. That is when Israel holds its fifth election in under three years. I think what most people remember is that uh, most of those elections were largely uh, inconclusive. 
And then Netanyahu finally gets the majority he wants and forms a coalition. So let's start there. Term, tell me about that coalition. Yes, yeah, so uh, as you said, this election in November came after uh, four previous elections that ended in a deadlock. And after the fourth deadlock, we had a short-lived government here in Israel, which we called the government of change. It was led by Netanyahu's opponents, a very wide and eclectic coalition, right-wing, left-wing, centrist, and an Arab party, a religious party. It fell apart after a year. We went to another election, and this time Netanyahu and the group of parties that are loyal to him managed to secure a majority of seats in the Israeli Knesset in our parliament, although they did not win a majority of the votes. I just want to put a little asterisk there. They received around 49% of the vote, but um, because they came to this election much better prepared, and I'm not going to go into the entire Israeli election system, it's so wildly different than the American system, but several of the left-wing parties in Israel basically wasted votes because they did not um, run in uh, united fronts and decided each one to go for its own, and several of them fell beneath what we call in Israel the electoral threshold. They're basically one no representation. It turned out that when everything was said and done, Netanyahu and his partners, it's basically Likud, which is his party, and all the different religious parties in Israel, ultra-Orthodox, far-right, they together won 64 seats, which in Israeli politics is usually a stable majority. We have 120 seats in our Knesset overall. And uh, obviously they formed a coalition based on this alliance of Likud and the religious parties. One thing that's important to note, Likud is 32 seats in this coalition, and their different religious parties are 32 of their own. So this is the first time in Israeli history where you really have a majority of the lawmakers in power coming from different religious parties, or within Likud, you have also a group of lawmakers who are much more aligned with the religious right wing and less uh, aligned with the traditional, more liberal values of Likud. And so it is a different kind of government. It's true, it's the same prime minister. Netanyahu has held power in Israel for 12 consecutive years and also had a short stint in the 1990s. It's maybe the same Netanyahu, but it's not the same government. In past Netanyahu governments, there was always some sort of a centrist, sometimes even left-wing element within his coalition. Uh, you can recall then Ehud Barak, Tzipi Livni, Yair Lapid. Many of the people today demonstrating against him in the streets used to be partners in his past coalitions. But this is a completely different story right now. It is a really just a, a pure, you can say, right-wing religious coalition with a very strong representation for the far-right ultra-nationalistic elements, which have never before held so much power as they do today. Okay, and one of the first things that coalition does uh, is it begins to draft legislation that would change the balance of power uh, within Israel quite dramatically. Uh, you know, Netanyahu, has, uh, he's, he's certainly a right-wing prime minister. He has also been a very cautious leader over the years. This legislation is not cautious, it's dramatic, and it's being rammed through very quickly. So my question is, why go after the Supreme Court? What is it about that body that aggravates the right wing in Israel, maybe aggravates specifically Netanyahu? There are several ways to answer this question, Dan. First of all, it's important to differentiate between Netanyahu himself and members of his coalition, because we can go back a decade and pull from the archive videos of Prime Minister Netanyahu, he was also Prime Minister back then, giving interviews in Hebrew and in English, saying how proud he is of the strengths of the Israeli judicial system and the independence of the Supreme Court. 
of course, Netanyahu rose to power after his predecessor, Ehud Olmert, basically lost power due to a corruption scandal, and he went on to face trial um, for bribery and was found guilty and set in jail. Um, but Netanyahu, I think, apart from the fact that perhaps you can say the judicial system helped him a bit over, uh, you know, defeat a political opponent, I think he really believed in it, that the Supreme Court was an important institution in safeguarding Israeli democracy and uh, promoting the liberal values of Israel that we Israelis are uh, always proud of and we showcase to the world. A lot of the progress that has happened in Israel in recent decades on issues like LGBT rights, women's rights, equality for minorities, actually did not come through legislation in the Knesset, but came through decisions of the Supreme Court on, of how to interpret the basic laws of the state of Israel. So what has changed? How did a man that a decade ago praised the Supreme Court and was proud of it now decide to basically dismantle a lot of its powers? I think there was an unusual meeting here of the, the personal interests of Benjamin Netanyahu and the ideological beliefs of some of his coalition partners. Netanyahu himself is currently standing trial in the Jerusalem District Court for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. The uh, trial has been ongoing for more than a year now. And obviously, he has a strong personal interest to weaken the judicial system and to give politicians much more control over how judges in Israel are appointed. We can go into the details later if you want. And basically, give him some kind of an insurance card against a legal system that he believes is going after. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that some of his coalition partners, unlike Netanyahu himself, have held a long-standing belief that the Supreme Court, because of its role in Israel as a liberalizing force in Israeli society, is a, an enemy from their point of view. I'm talking about the ultra-religious, ultra-nationalists in his coalition. For them, the things that the Supreme Court has uh, uh, done over the years by intervening in issues that have to do with human rights and civil rights, it's not something to be proud of. It's a problem. Their vision for Israel is very different than the vision of a liberal and open society that um, I think that many Israelis who took to the streets today uh, want to have for this country. But again, over the years, Netanyahu, even when he had coalitions with some of these religious parties, he always blocked initiatives that were meant to weaken the Supreme Court and the judicial system. He was always very, very clear that he's a right-wing prime minister and he's got his more nationalist views on some of the important issues that Israel is facing, but when it came to the Supreme Court, he didn't want to touch it. Now that has changed, and I think to ignore the elephant in the room, basically his own corruption trial, as a potential motivation for the change would be a mistake. We'll, we'll get to his trial in a minute. You're saying that's the decisive issue here. But first, I want to talk about the actual legislation, and I don't want to go too deeply into the technicalities. Uh, but I do want to understand, I want our viewers to understand what the legislation would do. We're talking about laws that would weaken the, su the Supreme Court. Uh, tell me in what ways they would weaken the Supreme Court. So there are several elements. It's a package of bills that they're trying to uh, put together at the same time. One element is what we call here in Israel an override clause, basically saying that the Knesset will have the ability to override decisions by the Supreme Court specifically on issues of legislation. So, for example, if the Knesset decided tomorrow morning to pass a law that hurt the rights of women in Israel or LGBT in Israel, 
the Supreme Court could strike down that law saying that it contradicts one of the basic laws of the state of Israel. We, we don't have a constitution here in Israel, but we have basic laws that are supposed to be, uh, you can say, the draft for a future constitution. And today, if the Supreme Court strikes down a law because it contradicts one of the basic laws of the state of Israel, the Knesset can try to amend the law and change it, but it has, at the end of the day, to accept the ruling of the court. Once you introduce an override clause, that means the Knesset can tell the Supreme Court, okay, we've heard your view, and we are pushing along this legislation anyway, despite the court's decision. Now, I have to say a, a personal opinion here. Uh, you know, I don't think an override clause by itself is a terrible idea that should never uh, be discussed. The question really is, what kind of majority does the Knesset need to use to override the Supreme Court decision? Because over the years, there have been different proposals. We have 120 members overall, so some people have made suggestions to give 70 lawmakers the ability to override the Supreme Court. Others have said it's not the number necessarily, but it needs to be a combination of coalition lawmakers who are loyal to the government and opposition lawmakers. If you want to override the Supreme Court decision, you need to recruit a certain amount of votes from the opposition. There have been all kinds of proposals. What the government is pushing through right now is the most extreme version of an override clause, basically stating 61 members of the Knesset, the smallest possible majority, is enough to override any Supreme Court decision. And I think this is one element of the plan that has gotten a lot of Israelis who are not well versed in the legal debate and maybe don't even follow politics that close to understand that there is a real sense of danger for their own rights here. Because 61 seats, like we saw in the recent election, by the way, it doesn't even have to be representative of the majority of the public. Sometimes because of the technical aspects of how our election system works, it can even be a, a plurality and not a majority. And to give so much power in the hands of the lawmakers is a big change. Another element is limiting the Supreme Court's ability to conduct judicial review in the first place. Basically, while the Knesset under this proposal will be able to strike down Supreme Court decisions with the smallest possible majority, the Supreme Court will have the ability to strike down legislation only if 80% of the justices support it, which is a very high bar. So you raise a very high bar for the justices, a very low one for the legislature. Again, if we're getting into the numbers game, I think even people like myself in Israel, and I personally am very disturbed about this legislation, can see the logic behind the principles themselves of making it more difficult for the Supreme Court to intervene, of giving more power to the Knesset. I don't think that by itself is some kind of a terrible idea. But when you look at the numbers, it becomes very clear that the ability of the Supreme Court to protect human rights and civil rights will be severely diminished. And one last aspect I want to bring here then, and we promise we won't be too technical, but the details do matter. The process of appointing judges in Israel. Uh, and here Netanyahu, I think, has a very good spin that he's been using in interviews with the American media. He says, well, all we want to do is give the politicians the ability to appoint judges and Supreme Court justices, just like in America. Who can be against that? But the difference is, in the United States, you have uh, the U.S. Senate voting on nominees for uh, you know, the Supreme Court and, and other courts as well. The Senate, first of all, very often is not controlled by the same party that controls the White House. I mean, right now we have a situation where Democrats have a, basically, you know, a tiebreaker in the Senate. But you, you look at recent history, it changes hands all the time. Senators in the U.S. are elected on a regional basis. While they belong to a party, they also have some level of commitment to the voters in their state. 
and they stand for election every six years. There is some level of stability there that gives them some breathing room to maybe differentiate themselves once in a while from the uh, White House, even if they're in the same party. In Israel, we don't have any of those layers of protection. Basically, what we have in Israel is a coalition that forms the government and is controlled by the government. And we also have a term that doesn't exist in American politics, basically uh, having some kind of a system where uh, members of the coalition have to vote in accordance with coalition decisions. And the last element of it in the United States, all the senators elect the judges. But here in Israel, we have a committee that does it. And today the committee is under a lot of criticism, some of it justified. It has representation for the judges, the politicians, and the lawyers bar. I'm not against reforming this committee. I think there are very strong arguments for changing it. But the government right now wants to give the coalition an automatic majority and the, the, basically de facto control of this committee. And so you have a situation after all is said and done where the coalition appoints the judges. The judges need an 80% majority to strike down legislation if they think that it contradicts one of Israel's basic laws. And the Knesset can then override it with the smallest possible majority. You combine all of that together and maybe you understand why more than 100,000 people were demonstrating today in Jerusalem and other cities against this judicial plan. So I would summarize that all those measures effectively will weaken the Supreme Court. And since the Supreme Court is one of the branches of government, the weaker it gets, the stronger the executive branch becomes, Netanyahu becomes, his government, uh, and so on. Um, you mentioned the court cases against Netanyahu. He's on trial for, you said, bribery, fraud, breach of trust, all uh, allegedly. And uh, I think that analysts have come to view these reforms as an attempt by Netanyahu essentially to escape those charges. I have to say that I have read through the reforms and it's not clear to me how weakening the Supreme Court, changing the structure would directly impact Netanyahu's court case. Tell me about that. So uh, first of all, then one sentence I have to say in response to, to, to what you said before getting to the Netanyahu trial, you said it would give the executive a lot of power and to Netanyahu. That's true. But I think what a lot of Israelis are concerned about is that it would also give a lot of power to Netanyahu's coalition partners and not necessarily to him personally. And Netanyahu, ever since this uh, reform or overhaul has become really the uh, biggest issue in Israeli politics, has given several interviews, all of them in English abroad, where he basically says, I'm going to have both hands on the wheel. I'm going to be deciding what you think I'm going to pass uh, anything that will hurt the gay community in Israel. You think that I will hurt women's rights. And I do believe him that these are not his values. That's not what he believes. But he has a coalition with several very powerful allies right now that definitely wants to change course when it comes to the liberalization of Israeli society, that want a more religious society, that want to take away rights from certain groups in Israel. And the big fear is that without the protection of the Supreme Court in a coalition where he himself relies on these partners to stay in power, and to fend away the legal challenge, they will be able to extract dangerous concessions for him. Now, regarding his own trial, so there's another element. I have to be a little technical to explain it. I apologize. But basically, in Israel, one thing that the court has done and has attracted a lot of criticism, and I believe some of it justified, is what we call the reasonableness standard. Basically, the Supreme Court over the years has ruled in a lot of, I don't know if a lot, but in, in some important cases, that governmental decisions or policies were just unreasonable. 
Um, and of course, reasonableness is part of the legal framework in smaller cases as well, right? I mean, if you are discuss uh, an accident or a mistake that was done by a doctor in a procedure or by an engineer who built, was involved in constructing a building, you ask yourself a lot of times as a judge, was this a reasonable assumption for a doctor or engineer to make? The Supreme Court in Israel has widened this sometimes to the political arena as well. I think the, let's say, the, the supporters of uh, the judicial overhaul do have a valid criticism on this point, uh, and that sometimes it's been used too loosely and too freely. But let's imagine, for example, that after this judicial overhaul passes, and indeed they limit the court's ability to use the reasonableness standard, Netanyahu's government then decides to fire Israel's attorney general and appoint instead of the current attorney general, a new attorney general that is much friendlier to Netanyahu and will then decide to freeze the uh, prosecution of the sitting prime minister and take another look at the evidence and uh, put this trial on hold. Supposedly, the Supreme Court could come and say, wait a minute, this does not pass the reasonableness standard at any level. This is a very, very unreasonable decision. Prime minister is in the midst of a corruption trial. We've heard dozens of witnesses until now. It's ongoing. And now you are shaking up the entire system. Obviously, the Supreme Court could then strike down those decisions. But if you take away that power from the Supreme Court, suddenly things look different. That's just one small example. Another interpretation, which I think is more theoretical, but it's interesting to put on the table, maybe Netanyahu wants to use this new structure as leverage for negotiating a better plea deal with the legal system for himself. There have been negotiations before the demand of the attorney general, not this one, but the previous one, the, the one who actually indicted Netanyahu, and of course, what his own appointment to the job was for Netanyahu to take a step back from public life, basically, uh, you know, retire from politics, at least for a certain amount of time. He refused to do that. Now, maybe with this sword hanging over the judicial system, the Supreme Court, he could negotiate better terms. So those are two examples of how this could also serve his own personal interests. Okay, that's, that's helpful. Um... You know, I want to talk about some of the responses to this legislation. We, men we mentioned that a lot of Israelis oppose it, oppose these laws. The very successful high-tech sector has mobilized against it. Leading economists have warned about the potential impact. Maybe you can explain why would legislation focused on the judicial system, essentially the, the power structure in Israel, why would that affect the economy? I'm not an economist. Uh, so I cannot say definitively that there will be an impact. Uh, all I can say is that really, I think a very impressive list of Israel's top economic experts, including the current governor of the Bank of Israel, who was a Netanyahu appointment, and including previous governors of the Bank of Israel, also appointed by Netanyahu. He's been in power for so long. Basically, everyone who's coming out against him now were people that used to work for him. Um, and as you mentioned, CEOs, uh, of big high-tech companies and investors, and actually even the uh, CEOs of the Israeli banks, they always try to stay away from politics, but even they have come out against this uh, judicial plan. I think they're, they're making two arguments if we try to sum it up. Number one is that this will hurt Israel's image as a member of the family of democratic countries. And this is a phrase that was used by French President Emmanuel Macron when he met Netanyahu two weeks ago in Paris. He said this legislation 
pushes Israel away from the family of democracy. And that being the only democracy in the Middle East and an island of liberal and uh, um, independent uh, you know, economy and politics is something that Israel has always used as part of its imaging, but I think also served its economic interests and specifically the high-tech industry enjoyed this image of Israel. And they're afraid that now it will be diminished. And I think there's also a fear that the government, after everything is said and done, if they actually pass this overhaul as it's structured right now, the government would be so powerful, it could actually make some dangerous and uh, irresponsible economic decisions and nobody would be able to, to block it. Uh, and we can go into issues of taxation and the spending. And uh, of course, this coalition also includes the ultra-Orthodox parties that have their own vision of what the Israeli economy should be like. And there's a huge economic challenge for Israel of incorporating the ultra-Orthodox in the uh, global modern economy, which right now Israel is not very successful at. So they're raising these arguments. I think there's another element here, which uh, to me as a citizen is actually more scary. And that is we're hearing these stories from uh, the banking industry. We, there was a meeting of Netanyahu with the top executives, uh, I think three weeks ago. And the CEOs told him, we're seeing people pulling money out of the country right now. We're seeing Israelis that have the you know, foreign bank accounts or have enough uh, money that, to easily open one, basically taking their money out of the banks right now because they're afraid of the instability, because they're afraid the country is sliding from democracy to autocracy, because we see the shekel, the Israeli currency, uh, weakening against the dollar for all of those reasons and others. And that's something that I think is uh, more psychological. But of course, I don't know much about economics, but I do know that uh, psychology plays a big part in it. And when you see that kind of phenomenon and you see the, the, the leaders of the banking industry against, the, I think, every instinct, which is not to talk about it, because when you talk about it, more people want to do it, come to the prime minister and warn him that it's happening, that's a bit of a red flag that everybody needs to be aware of. Sure. And, you know, Israelis have been protesting about this, protesting the measures. Uh, we've talked about uh, many thousands of people coming out every week since the uh, government was formed and maybe some of the biggest and most sustained protests in decades. I have to say that in my recollection, street protests in Israel, and there have been many over the years, they don't usually translate into actual change in policies or politics. What are the chances that the protests or the petitions by economists and others uh, would have any real impact? So far, I think the biggest achievement of this protest movement is what happened last night when we saw the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog. In Israel, the presidency is more of a symbolic role. Uh, it's the government that actually makes the decisions, but the president has some symbolic um, uh, and, uh, let's say, uh, you know, kind of... Um, it's like an institution that is supposed to be above politics. And yeah, it's, he's a ceremonial, a ceremonial figure. Yeah, a ceremonial figure. The president came and gave a speech to the nation, and he said, this uh, reform is tearing apart the country, and uh, we're seeing dangerous rhetoric, and we're seeing a real crisis, um, and, of course, fear also for the economy. And he even said that while he understands why the Israeli right wing and the religious parties do want to change the balance of power, and he kind of sympathized with some of their arguments against the current powers of the Supreme Court. He said what they're trying to do is too extreme, um, and it could actually lead to an erosion of democracy and hurt human and civil rights. And he proposed 
to freeze the legislation, which so far has passed out of uh, one uh, Knesset committee this morning, and it's supposed now to go to three votes in the Knesset in the general uh, uh, plenum. And he basically said, let's freeze the process and sit down and talk. And he offered several, I would say, thin frameworks for the discussion. He basically took the government's decision and moderated it a little bit here, a little bit there, softened it you know, on the edges, and said this should be the basis for negotiations. We saw Yair Lapid, the leader of the opposition, immediately say, I accept his call, but he emphasized the government has to stop the legislation. This is what the president said. And then we saw um, the justice minister, Yariv Levine, and uh, a member of Knesset who is leading the uh, committee vote uh, in the Committee on Law and Constitution basically come and say, we're not stopping. We're happy to talk to the opposition, but we're not freezing anything. We're moving along with the legislation. And that, in a way, killed the president's initiative before it was even born. Because I think this is one thing the opposition is going to completely insist on, that in order to negotiate, the government has to put a, the legislation on hold. Now, we do have about a week until the next vote takes place, and maybe that week could be used for some negotiations. Um, we saw today the stock exchange in Tel Aviv after a week of uh, going down and down and down, suddenly going up because I think there was some optimism that the president's initiative could lead to a more moderate reform and end this crisis. I think if the president's initiative will fail and uh, we'll see that everything is, is moving along as planned, the demonstrations continue and grow and grow and we see more high-tech companies saying they're pulling their funds out of Israel, and we hear more of these um, disturbing voices from the banks, I think we could actually go in a very dangerous direction. So this is an important moment right now after the president has come forward with his suggestion. And I have to add, we've also had another president uh, make uh, comments about this on Sunday, President Joe Biden, who told the New York Times that the U.S.-Israel relationship is built on a uh, you know, the, the common ideals of democracy, including a strong judiciary and independent institutions. Um, that was very polite, but I think it was his own way of telling Netanyahu, please, we have so many problems to deal with right now. Please sit down with your opposition and find a way to solve this so we don't now also have a crisis brewing in Israel. So that was very polite. Um, and you covered Washington, so you know a little bit about the, uh, the power structure in Washington. Um, and I want to ask you, the Biden administration could do any number of things to bring pressure to bear on Israel on this issue, on other issues. And yet he has not. Um, you know, it was a polite statement, uh, nothing else uh, so far. Why isn't the Biden administration speaking up more forcefully? First of all, it's true that it was a polite statement, but it did make headlines in Israel. I mean, after it was published in the New York Times, all the media outlets in Israel made it their top headlines. And, and there was a realization that it's unusual for an American president to comment on internal issues like this within Israel. We are used to the Americans putting their red lines on issues like Iran and uh, on the Palestinian arena, no annexation. Uh, we heard that from Trump even. Don't bomb Iran, don't annex the settlements, don't change the status quo on Temple Mount, things like that. Just to have an American president comment on legislation in the Knesset that has not even passed out of committee yet, uh, and it has to do with internal issues, I think it was unusual. Uh, I, personally, this is an, an opinion, I, I think it was the right move by Biden because for a president 
who has made the protection of democracy such an important, really, I think the main theme of his presidency and, you know, took a bet on it before the midterm elections and I think was rewarded for that bet. For a president like that to see a close ally like Israel uh, join the club of countries that, you know, their democracies is eroding. You, you mentioned Poland, Hungary, Turkey. I don't think that's a good development for him. And I assume he's also hearing concern from the American Jewish community, which is very committed to supporting Israel um, and has a long history of support for the country. And yet we are hearing very prominent voices in the Jewish community, people who have always supported Israel uh, and worked to strengthen the alliance between Israel and America now speak up against these judicial plans. We interviewed in Haaretz Ellen Dershowitz, who is uh, you know, a lifelong Israel supporter and a big fan of Netanyahu and defended Netanyahu when the corruption charges uh, were, uh, you know, started. And I mean, not, not in court, but in the court of public opinion. And he gave an interview warning about all the dangers of this uh, uh, plan to overhaul the judiciary. And, and he basically begged Netanyahu in the interview, don't do this. Um, so I'm sure President Biden is also hearing voices like that from the American Jewish community that could also lead to action. Uh, it's an interesting question. Will this statement be the end of it? We also had one by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken when he visited Israel, which I think was a bit more forceful. He highlighted the importance of the shared values as a component of the American-Israeli relationship. Or will we see more? My gut feeling is that as the protest movement in Israel will strengthen and grow, and we'll hear more voices also from the American Jewish community, um, and one thing that I'm personally worried about, but that maybe the government will respond to the protest in a more forceful way, more violent way, Biden could be dragged to deal with this more and more, even if he doesn't really want to. And of course, I imagine that there are things going on behind the scenes that we're not hearing about, possibly some, uh, some pressure. Uh, Amir, we're running out of time. I do want to get to one or two more issues if you have time, mm -hmm. beginning with uh, the Palestinians. FP subscriber Zaha Hassan sent in a question asking about that issue, about the fate of Palestinians. There's been, of course, a recent uptick in violence between the two sides in recent weeks. And, you know, in some ways, this debate in Israel about democracy means very little to Palestinians. They do not benefit from the democratic principles that govern uh, Israel. Those principles are, principles are not extended to Palestinians in the West Bank. Um, but Palestinians are affected by this new Israeli government. Cabinet ministers are calling for more aggressive measures against Palestinians. Some cabinet ministers are also talking about annexing the West Bank. So let me ask, let me ask you about that last issue about annexation. How likely is it that Israel would move towards annexing the West Bank in the coming year or even annex it outright? So it's true that this government, Esed, is fighting the Israeli judicial system, and now also the high-tech companies and the banks and God knows who's next. It's also really looking at a very difficult security situation. We've had uh, uh, two terror attacks in Jerusalem in the last two weeks that led to, I think, uh, 10 uh, people dying, um, including two young children in really a tragic and heartbreaking terror attack that happened just this Friday in Jerusalem. And we're seeing also in the different parts of the West Bank, in Jenin, in Jericho, in Nablus, confrontations and a lot of Palestinian deaths as well. I, uh, I think I, it's around 30 or even more by now since the, um, the government started. 
And in the area of Israel where I live, I live on the Israeli border with Gaza, as you mentioned, Dan, around 30 rocket launches from Gaza in the past few weeks, which is a lot more than we've had in the months before when we had the, the government of uh, Yair Lapid still in power. So all of that combined uh, definitely points at a disturbing possibility of uh, military escalation. The issue of annexation, personally, I find it hard to see that the government will formally annex settlements as long as Biden is in the White House. If Israel didn't get a green light for annexation under Trump, obviously it's not going to get one from Biden. And Netanyahu right now really is fighting on so many fronts domestically because of this judicial plan. Um, and really, I think he's been surprised by the response of the Israeli public. I don't think he anticipated so much resistance, and I don't think he believed it would spread to the high-tech industry and uh, the financial institutions and, and places like that. And so for him now, full-scale escalation on the Palestinian front, maybe a war with Gaza, God forbid, a third intifada in the occupied territories, uh, I think would be disastrous. And so he is trying a bit, I think, to calm down some of the far-right ministers in his government. And I'm sure that they're hearing the words, but Biden, quite a lot in the closed-door discussions where they come up with all these crazy demands. Let's demolish everything and let's make, you know, thousands of arrests and blow up the, the entire West Bank. But I think he tells them, well, but Biden, the question is how long will they agree to hear those two words? And will he lose eventually the ability to block them? Because he, remember, he also relies on them for staying in power. And staying in power means a lot for him right now because of his own uh, legal troubles. So it's a very delicate and problematic situation. Okay, I'm going to ask you a last question. I want to look ahead to the coming days and weeks. We talked about the fact that the legislative process has already begun in Israel. It could last several weeks. Uh, and then if these laws do pass, it seems very likely that the Supreme Court would strike them down. Um, and I imagine that that would create a real constitutional crisis. It would bring things Oof. to a head. Um, I am wondering if I'm accurate, you're shaking your head. Is, is that true? Uh, and if it is true, what happens next? Um, yeah, that's the, uh, the vertigo scenario of Israeli democracy, right? The, the Knesset passes legislation that is very controversial and um, gets a lot of public opposition and completely changes the balance of power between the government and the courts. And then the court comes and strikes down the legislation. And then what the government comes and says, we don't respect this decision by the court. We were pretty close to that scenario already uh, when the Supreme Court last month decided that Arya Derry, one of Netanyahu's most important coalition allies, the leader of an ultra-Orthodox party, uh, could not serve as a minister in the government because of his past criminal convictions and tax evasion and things like that. And we did hear voices from the government, not Netanyahu himself, but voices from the government saying we, we shouldn't adhere to this Supreme Court decision. And while Netanyahu fired Arya Derry, the, this politician, because of the Supreme Court decision, we know that he continues to invite him now to security cabinet discussions, including one that took place yesterday. Um, so that by itself, you can argue, is a challenge of the court's decision. But if the court actually strikes down this uh, judicial overhaul, I'm not sure the government will accept it. And then we're going into unprecedented and full uh, mode constitutional crisis here in Israel. And I think this is why President Herzog is worried. This is why President Biden is worried, because 
if what's happening right now is a big deal, but what could happen a month from today is uh, epic. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay, I think that's all we have time for, unfortunately. Amir Tibon, thanks so much for being here. I hope we can uh, talk again soon. For now, I'm Dan Efron. Thanks for joining us. And that was FP's Dan Efron together with Amir Tibon, a senior editor and writer for Israel's Haaretz newspaper. Thanks for listening. Again, if you want to watch these in video live, you can do that on foreignpolicy.com slash live. FP subscribers get a chance to be a part of the conversation and submit their questions. Those questions then help me frame these discussions. Sign up and use the code FPLIVE for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.